Well, good morning. How are you? Good. I heard this side of the room said good, and this side of the room was quiet. Hopefully by the end, you'll be awake. Hey, it's good to be here. Week two of Advent, week two of our series, Humankind. We think the most important question you will ever ask in your entire life is this. Who is Jesus? The answer to that question will have more of an impact on your life and the world around you than any other question you will ever ask. And our hope is that during this series, Humankind, we begin to answer that question, who is Jesus, more and more every week. And I'm very particular about the use of the word begin because how many of you know that Jesus is a well you can continue to uh, dive into its depths and you'll still never just scratch the surface. And so our desire is that we would get to know Jesus better. But who is Jesus? Jesus said this of himself, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This is Jesus' very Jewish way of saying, if you have seen Jesus, you have seen God himself. And not just a God, the creator of all, the supreme of all. Later New Testament authors summarize the same teaching. The Apostle Paul in Colossians says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Let me say that again. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. If you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know his character, if you want to know his heart for the world, for people, you look at Jesus. And that's what we're doing. Now, there's a good chance that you're tuned in online or you're in this room um, because somebody drug you here. Maybe he's cute or she's cute and you're just here, but you don't buy into the whole Jesus is God thing. Now, and I hear you on that. Let me just say you're welcome here and we're so glad that you're here. I don't think it's an accident if you showed up here. Um, I think that there's something behind that. But say you just don't see that Jesus could possibly be God because you don't believe in God. And here's what I would say. Um, Beyond that you're welcome here, I think it's rational and good thought to consider that a man who claimed 2,000 years ago to be God in the flesh and then has had the impact on the world over the last few thousand years that Jesus has had, I think it's worth investigating. That's just one of the cultural narratives of thoughts about Jesus, but it's no longer the dominant thought. And we've sort of moved out of that space of sort of an atheism, this idea that there is nothing spiritual. And as a culture, we've moved more towards this idea that everything is deeply spiritual, but to claim that there is a supreme, a ultimate truth over all other paths, that's out of vogue. So a lot of people see Jesus as just another good moral teacher who taught in this longer stream of spirituality and this sort of nebulous truth that sort of all points in the same direction. And again, if that's you, if that's where you gravitate towards, we're so glad that you were here, seriously excited that you're still seeking and looking for something, and our hope is that you would find Jesus. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this about the good moral teacher idea. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man 
and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the very devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that up open to us, and he did not intend to. Amen? (laughs) Thank you, C.S. Lewis, right? But there's a third idea here that I think it's more subtle, and it's for any of us that call ourselves Christians It's when, instead of looking at the very person of Jesus, we begin to add sort of sub-Christian culture ideas to Jesus. We begin to add our political ideologies to Jesus. We begin to add things to Jesus, about Jesus, that were never Jesus himself. And we're going to actually encounter in the text we're going to look at today... Um, we're going to encounter a group of people that sort of see God in a way that isn't actually reflective of who God is. And Jesus is going to challenge their ideas. He's going to challenge their teachings. And my encouragement for you today is wherever you're at in your journey of following Jesus is to be humble enough to allow Jesus to challenge the ideas that you have about himself. Now, I believe we all have a lens to which we see God. We've already read that if Jesus is the exact representation of God, Jesus should be the lens, the glasses that we use to see who God is. I have a daughter who um, goes to vision therapy. She needs glasses to correct her vision so that she can see more clearly. Jesus is our corrective lens for God. He helps us see more clearly. Now, my daughter Isla, she's great. She's four. And uh, me and my two middle daughters, um, I have four daughters, uh, two-year-old and four-year-old, my middle daughters, we were on our way to go pick up a Papa Murphy's pizza. Now, I'm telling you, Papa Murphy's pizza was good when I was a kid. It is still good today, especially on a budget. Come on. (laughs) We were on our way to pick up a Papa Murphy's pizza in my Jetta mom wagon, and uh, As we were driving down the road, this is when the best conversations with your kids come up. My daughter, Isla, says, Dad, can God change the seasons? Now, this is the downside of having a degree in Bible and a pastor, because I'm instantly going to as complex of an answer as I can, right? But my answer was just, yes. (laughs) Yes, God can, Isla. He set the world up so that spring moves to fall or excuse me, summer, I really confused her, (laughs) summer to fall, fall to winter, and that's how God designed the universe. And she goes, oh, good, Dad. And I said, what's the good news about that? She goes, I'm going to ask God to make winter summer because I'm tired of the cold. (laughs) Everybody here said amen, right? But see, Isla's lens of God is seen through her experience. She's four. And she's really cute, but her vision of God is limited to her experience. And also her vision of God is limited to her desires. I want summer at Christmas time. That's the desire, right? I think we in this room have that same 
sort of challenge to have to overcome when we talk about correcting the lens in which we see Jesus. We have our own experiences that get in the way sometimes, our pain, our hurt, our triumph. But then at the end of the day, we also have our desires, some of which don't line up with Jesus and his plan for us. But again, today is about correcting the lens because Jesus is the revelation of God. If you want to know what God is like, how he relates to us, how he sees the world in this sort of crazy state that we are in right now. And if you want to know what God thinks about where this story is going, we correct our sight onto Jesus. And so today we look at two stories, one about a centurion and one about a widow, both of which are stories of people, normal people that meet Jesus and their view of God. God is drastically shifted. And so today we're going to hope that by the end of those two stories, our eyes, um, our vision of who God is, is clear. Luke chapter 7 in your Bible. Now after that long introduction, Luke 7 verse 1 is where we're going to start. When Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. This is a transitional verse. And the idea of a verse like this is to make sure that you know what's coming is built on what came before it. So what came before it? Jesus taught one of his famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. And Luke, he records it a little differently than in Matthew's gospel. But ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount, on the Mount, (laughs) is the manifesto of the kingdom of heaven, Hear me on this. Jesus did not come into the world to bring warm sentimentality to your hearts. He came to start a revolution. Because if you look around and you can see, the world needs change. It needs healing. It needs hope. So Jesus enters into the world and he begins to teach. And the Sermon on the Mount is his manifesto of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. It's his introduction to a revolution of cosmic proportions. In Matthew's gospel, he starts the Sermon on the Mount by saying, you, people of God, are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? It preserves from decay. You, people of God, are to be in the world holding back the evil and the darkness in this world. So you are to be salt of the earth. You are to be a preservative, a flavor. In. So you're to bring about restoration And you're supposed to bring about healing into the world. That's his desire for us. So we understand that. But then what does that actually mean? Well, he starts saying, it's not what you think it is. It's not through violence or force or coercion or the kind of power that the world wields. It's this, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Don't judge other people harshly, but instead show mercy. Good behavior, the the, the goodness that comes from our lives and into the world is, is about God's life flowing through us into other people. And so this is the summary of the Sermon on the Mount, but now Jesus is going to actually put these things into practice. He's going to actually show you what it looks like to live this revolutionary life. Verse two, there's a centurion servant whom his master valued highly. He was sick and he was about to die. A Roman centurion would have been a symbol um, at the time, a symbol of what's called Pax Romana, a Roman peace. Rome brought peace to the world, but not the same way Jesus brings peace to the world. Um, They brought peace to the world through the edge of a sword, right? It's forced peace. 
you behave, you do as we say, empire of Rome, and there'll be peace. Jesus went about it in a much different way, but a centurion, especially in a small place like Capernaum, would have been a symbol of Pax Romana to that world. He also would have been in charge. This man would have had power, wealth, money. He would have been ex-military assignment deployed, and now he is landing in a more governance kind of position in Capernaum. Everyone in the town would have known him. Many Jews um, in, in, a, in a centurion setting would have tried to avoid him because hear me on this, if you are the oppressed people, the very symbol of oppression is what you don't want to be around. And yet there's something different about this centurion. We see a little glimpse into his character. And what we're going to see is our assumptions about what other people might be like often are purely assumptions, but as soon as we move closer to people that are different than us, we begin to get a different picture. And so this would be somebody that likely we would avoid because of their differences, because of their voting status, whatever it would be. Um, But the closer we get to that person, the closer we get to know their story, the more complex they become. This is a man who has a servant. Now, servant is a nice word, for in the Greek, slave. Now, the institution of slavery in the first century was very different than what probably comes to mind for our modern sensibilities. However, the truth is, this is still a man who owned other human beings as property. And this sort of complex person who values his human slave, who represents Rome and all that comes with that, is the person that Jesus moves towards. The word highly valued in the Greek could be the word dear, which I don't know about you, but when you write a letter and you say like, dear John, that's an endearing thing, am I right? Like it's supposed to communicate love and familial affection of some kind. And so here again, we have this complex person who loves his slave, like family. I think we're uncomfortable with complexity. We want things to be either this or that, and we work really hard to sort of find our way into categorizing whether something is good or something is bad. Things that are black or white, and certainly there are things in our culture that are as cemented as that, and our culture is trying to make them more ambiguous. But then there's other things that we want to, for our own, you know, sort of comfort, categorize in this or that. And really the story, what it challenges us with is that here's a man who owns slaves and yet treats them like family. And now Jesus is going to look at him as an example of incredible faith. Complex situation. God moves towards our complexity, not away from it. That's what I'm trying to say. God's moving towards your complex and confusing situation. He's not waiting for you to get everything in line, in order. And he works through the broken systems of this world as well. Verse 3, the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders to the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this. Because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with him. We don't know how the centurion heard about Jesus. And we don't really know why Jesus went. 
This passage is interesting because, you know, Jesus is pretty silent up to this point. What we do know is that something is drawing Jesus and this centurion together. Now, the centurion uses mediated access. In other words, this is a powerful man who knows how to tell other people how to get the job done, right? We get another glimpse into this man's power and his ability to say, hey, Brad, you go do this for me and let me know how it comes. Now, that's certainly one way to look at it, but what we're gonna see here in a minute is that there's more complexity to his desire to work through someone else to access Jesus. What we also know um, in this passage is that he's very wealthy. He's built their synagogue. Now, hear me on this. This would be like the equivalent of the mayor of Portland building a house of worship for us today. Kind of bizarre, even to think about that. But if that person did do something like that, you would feel connection to that person. You would feel grateful to that person. And, and what we see here is that the Jewish people in Capernaum have that level of connection with the centurion. But at the same time, through this whole passage, the Jewish people sort of tip their hands at their lens of God. They believe that a person's good works, good deeds, make a person worthy of God's blessing. This is a subtle danger, my friends. This is a, a bad theology creeping in. We're tempted to believe the same thing. I'm tempted to believe the same thing. I've done good things, God. Why haven't you followed through on your end of the bargain? Or this person was good. Why did they suffer? Why is there pain in their life? And so here's this subtle but incorrect lens through which the Jewish people at the time see God as represented by the Jewish elders. But what you'll notice here is that Jesus doesn't respond to any of it. All Jesus does is he keeps moving closer to the centurion. Bad theology and all. Again, our temptation is to try to get everything lined up and in order and clean and perfect, to believe that God will draw near to us, but the story repeats itself. Jesus keeps drawing near to you. Verse six continues. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Two things here. First, the centurion calls Jesus Lord. This isn't Christianese. The Greek word is kurios. It means master or king. The most common person to be called kurios in Jesus' day was Caesar. Caesar kurios. In fact, Polycarp, later in the first century, a Christian martyr, he wrote down that uh, Christians would be forced to say, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. And if not, they'd be thrown into the arena, they'd be beheaded, they'd be crucified, they'd be murdered. It gives you a glimpse into how dangerous it can be to claim that anyone else might be Lord. Now, at the same time, if you are the centurion and you have all the power in Capernaum, 
you're used to people calling you curios. But here, a poor, homeless, itinerant traveling rabbi, a Jewish minority in the Roman Empire, this powerful man sees him and calls him Lord. You don't get to the position he is in without bending your knee to Caesar, calling Caesar curios and Lord, and yet something has changed. This man, what we get a glimpse at by one word, is that he is now willing to risk everything he has to call Jesus his Lord. Rome itself could strip away his position, his power, his wealth, his influence, all the people he cares about like that because he's bending his knee, not to Caesar, but to Jesus. And the other thing that's interesting is right before the people of God said, this man deserves your presence, but the centurion recognizes something that they don't. He doesn't even deserve to be in the presence of Jesus. And so again, now we have a character who, yes, is very complex, working through complex circumstances, but apparently has a more accurate view of who God is revealed in the person of Jesus than the very people of God do. The result of this is that verse uh, 9 says this, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, finally breaking his silence, he says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Eugene Peterson in the message renders this passage this way. Jesus, taken aback, addressed the accompanying crowd. I've yet to come across this kind of simple trust anywhere in Israel. The very people who are supposed to know about God and how he works. Jesus finally breaks the silence and he's moved emotionally by the faith of the centurion. Faith, what is it? In the Greek, it's the word pistis. Sometimes we think about faith from like this standpoint of checking off the boxes of what we have to believe. But a better translation is what Eugene Peterson picked up on here is simple trust. My kids have simple trust in their father because I'm their father and I love them. But you may hear that and you think simple, simple-minded. It's not rational or reasonable. It's not well thought out. And it's anything but that. I think simple can be misunderstood. Another word that I would use is humble trust. For the centurion, it's this humility that says, you are greater than I. You are greater than all. Therefore, I entrust everything I have to you. This is the faith that the centurion is commended for, and this is the invitation for you and for me. And the result in this crazy story is a person who never physically sees Jesus, the centurion, is commended for his character and his faith to the world for thousands of years. And a person who never knows that any of this is going on is healed. <laughs> which is a crazy story. So now we have a man who has it all and recognizes that everything this world has to offer is nothing compared to the humble trust of Jesus. And next we're gonna meet a woman who has nothing. 
Verse 11, soon afterward, Jesus went down to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was with her. So Jesus moves on, and he runs into a funeral procession. He runs into a woman who's grieving at the loss of not just her husband, but her son. This is a patriarchal society, which means this. If you have no male covering, you're done for. Provision, protection, and, and, and property, those are not things that you could have. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing, and I'm not saying it's right. But again, like Jesus moves towards the complexity of a broken culture, a centurion who owned human slaves, Jesus moves towards a woman a com- in a complex cultural situation who is not valued because she's a woman, who has no opportunity because she's a woman, and yet Jesus moves towards her as well. But unlike the centurion, purely from a sort of worldly standpoint, this woman has nothing to offer Jesus, and yet he continues to move towards her. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Hmm. This is the same curios, the same Lord that meets the powerful centurion. Now that same powerful creator of all is moving towards a woman who has nothing to offer. And his one thing that he says to her is a word of comfort. He's moved in his very heart. God is moved by your brokenness. He's not angry at your brokenness. His heart is drawn towards you. He sees you, and if there's anything you need to hear, it's this, don't cry. That is the Lord of heaven. Verse 14, but it doesn't just stop there. See, again, Jesus didn't just come to bring sentimentality and good feelings. He came with power. Then he went up and he touched the bear that they were carrying him on, and the bear stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and he began to talk and Jesus gave him back to her mother. Come on. What an insane scene. I don't even know why I think it's so funny, but this guy wrapped in burial cloths who's probably been dead for 24 hours pops right up and just starts talking. Like, what did he even have to say? Dang, that dinner was weird last night, mom. It's like, I, I don't even know. It's wild. But this is the power of the creator of the universe. I told you earlier, the revolution God is beginning is about bringing healing to this earth. And this is what Jesus does. <laughs> How would you react if you saw this? If you were a witness to what was going on here? Well, this is how the people around them reacted. They were all filled with awe and they praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Hear me, their lens of how they saw God just got bigger. Now they see God more clearly. But actually, this gives me great peace and comfort. They still kind of miss it, just a little bit. While the widow and the centurion recognize that Jesus is Lord, The people in this situation just see Jesus as a great prophet that has appeared among us. 
which again is an invitation to you. If you're on a journey, that's okay. Jesus still moves towards you. But what they do know, what has become abundantly clear in their lens of who God is through Jesus is this. God has come to help his people. He loves and cares for each person here. God has not abandoned you. Luke couples these two stories together intentionally. They are both about two desperate people who need God to move because they're facing crushing relational loss. The first, again, is about a man who had everything the world could offer, and yet he still lacked something, and that something is Jesus. And the second is a story about a woman who had nothing to give, who couldn't even utter with her words what her need is, and yet she still had the same need that Centurion had, Jesus. To the one who has much, you should hear this. It's not about what you have. It's about whom you believe what you have belongs to. And what he says you should be doing with it. And your ability to let go of that and entrust that to him, believing that he is the God who cares for you. That's the simple trust of the centurion. So if you're a business owner, if you're a person of influence, if you're in leadership in any capacity, and hear me on this, almost all of you in this room are in leadership of some capacity, whether it's one person in your family or whether it's thousands of people looking to you for leadership. Here is a picture of a man of power who simply and humbly trusts Jesus with what he has. And then to the one who has nothing, very little to offer, Hear me on this. God is near to the brokenhearted. The same Jesus that moves towards the widow is the same Jesus that is going to move towards you in your brokenness and in your pain. Listen, he may not move in the way that you want him to or the way that you think he should, but this story is all about how he continues to move towards you for your best interest and for your own good. So regardless of our differences here in the room today or online, our need is also the same. It is the Lord Jesus. So we're going be- to end in the very same place that we began. But now, hopefully, with a more full lens. Who is Jesus? That's the question as we wrap up. I want to take a moment just to pray over you but also for you to participate in prayer with me. As we're wrapping up and we're in prayer, I, just, I invite you to close your eyes and to allow the word to sort of meditate onto your heart and to let you process with the Lord. But I want to invite you to consider who you relate to most in this story. Are you the centurion? Are you the widow? There's another group of people. (laughs) Are you the uh, Jewish elder who thinks they have God all figured out? Who knows who's right and who's wrong? Today is an opportunity to repent and to turn from that. Or are you simply the person in the crowd who is completely and utterly amazed by the reality that God would move towards you?
Let God speak to you, invite you, and recognize that the answer to this question is not intended to create shame, but to invite you to know Jesus better. Now, I know I didn't give a ton of time for that, but continue to ask yourself that question in the days and weeks ahead, hours ahead. One of Jesus' favorite questions is this. What do you want me to do for you? This is a story about two people with desperate needs. One could articulate what that need was, and the other could not even put it to words. And yet Jesus drew towards them and provided what they needed. So today, if you can even put it to words where it's just this grumbling, groaning feeling inside of you, or maybe you know exactly what it is, that thing fell apart, that relationship fell apart, that business deal fell apart last week, what do you need of the Lord? Take a moment to ask him that question. And understand this, that if Jesus asks that question, it's that he actually cares about you. And then finally, it's this. This is a passage of scripture that invites you to let Jesus be the Lord of your life. This is what his lordship looks like. This is what his leadership looks like. And there might be people in the room who've walked away from Jesus. Maybe you said at one point in time, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life, but you've sort of moved away from that. And today is an opportunity to come home. Or maybe you've never even thought about it. And this morning was a time for you to say, you know what, I wanna trust you, God. I wanna know the God who acts like this, who does these sorts of things, and who loves me in this way. In your own space, um, you don't need to put on a show in this moment, just in the quiet of your own soul, I just encourage you to invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life, if that's who you are today, and where you're at. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for your word. Jesus, thanks for leaving heaven to come down to earth to show us who you are and to invite us into relationship with you. God, I believe that today, this morning, but not just today, all throughout people's lives in this room, you have been moving towards them in their victory, in their success, and in their failure, and their brokenness. You draw near to us. You are the God who has come to help us. So may everyone in this room be filled with abundant of joy and peace, knowing that, God, you came to be with us. God, we love you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. 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 Well, thank you so much. Yeah, would you go ahead and stand with me real quick? And a couple announcements for you before the benediction. Um, We have some people in the room. There are elders. They would love to pray with you if you're going through anything. They have name tags. They're orange, like these guys right up here. There's an info center in our common space. If you have questions about anything happening here, we would love for you to stop by there. And last is this, and it's most important. Next week, our kids' choir is leading us in worship on Sunday morning. You don't want to miss it, so make sure you're here. And let me pray a benediction over you. May you be a people of humble trust. May you be a people that know that God is moving 
towards you and he's for you. And may you be a people that tell the world this good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Enjoy your day.